uh, the newsmen showed up at the door with their cameras uh, blazing and uh, they wanted to get our advice on something. Now they'd never come to us before, but there was a controversy going on uh, downtown at the uh, city council. And the controversy was that someone, uh, uh, some, someone in the Jewish community was upset because they have prayer before every council meeting. And they end the prayer in Jesus' name. And so he stood up and said, we want this to stop. We don't want any more praying that ends in Jesus' name. Um, and so they came over to get our opinion, what we thought about it. Uh, and Panyadipa said, well, you never come to ask my opinion about anything else. But this is what I'll say. Uh, if praying helps, let them pray. He said, we should all pray if it'll help us, you know. So he says, I don't want to get caught up in a controversy. He says, I think praying is good if you think it's good and that if you do it, it'll benefit you, make you a better person. And that was, that was our, our response to that. And trying to be drawn into a controversy to create a bigger controversy. And, um, and that was how, you know, wisdom can sidestep an issue. But, but yet there was a measure of truth in that that whatever tools are at our disposal, if we use them, you know, then we can be better. We can be uh, more true to our own great wish, our own great aspiration uh, for being, for the cultivation of the qualities that we say that we want uh, to live and be, move and have our being as the kind of person that we want to be in the world. And all of these aspects are necessary. It's good to, to understand something intellectually, but, but how, how do we walk that out? That, I mean, because that's what really counts, how we walk out what we say we know, what we say we understand, what we say we have experienced, what we say we know directly. Our walking out of it is the proof um, in the pudding. So I thought I'd talk about um, the reason for the season today, and I'm a Buddhist, so surely if I can say it, maybe if that's not your tradition, you could just indulge the hearing of it. Because truth by any name is useful and valuable. And a rose by any name is still a rose. It's our own uh, kind of discriminating and uh, uh, tearing apart and labeling and compartmentalizing that causes uh, all of the confusion and the destruction. They tell us that historically Jesus was probably born in September. Um, but it got mixed with some other existing tradition and no need to create a new one. We'll just piggyback on that one. Uh, and it became December, uh, December 25th. You know, but whether we have the dates right or not doesn't matter. One thing is that we know he was born. And we can say who we think he was. Like, I believe that he was a bodhisattva, uh, one who hears the 
cries of the world and can respond with compassion and power, a great holy being. But that's because I had a direct encounter. If you haven't, then you may not feel that way, and that doesn't bother me at all. So because I had, don't let it bother you at all. No, that's just uh, my belief based on an experience and your belief perhaps based on a non-experience. They're both, you know, equally valid, right? So we don't have to get into controversies like that. See, we're always majoring on the, on the minors, and so we miss uh, the salient features of things that could take us somewhere, whether it's within our tradition or without our tradition. But when I put together the words left by his disciples, much like I do with the Dharma, then I know something. The rest is my or your conjecture, or who we believe he is, or what level of being he is, or, or whatever. And that's open, you know, to opinion. But when you read the words that are left, then there's something that you can, can draw upon, you can ascertain, and you can know uh, what manner of being that was. <clears throat> and he said, these are the things we speak, not the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost, or you say the holy beings, teach, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. So that tells us right away that there are worldly things and spiritual things, and these things are, are not the same two things. We had a discussion yesterday about love. And from one perspective, it was about worldly love, things connected with the world. And on another, Bonte was explaining about love not having anything to do, spiritual talking to spiritual talking, anything to do with um, the, the worldly ways that we look and we, and we hold love. And if we get these things mixed up, that we're mixing spiritual things with worldly things, and we come away confused. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about the mind that was in this being as determined from the words that were left. In Philippians, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made of himself no reputation and humbled himself, took upon him the form of a servant, a man, and humbled himself to the obedience unto death. And there was a time that I understood this in a certain way before I encountered the Dharma, but now that I've encountered the Dharma and I read it, it says something not way, way different, but different enough that I can find a meaning in this for me. I can find a meaning in this for how to conduct my life, or how to look at things, and that's what's important. It's not just the words, but how they can be useful to us in living a life of, of virtue. How they can be useful to us in waking up from our delusion. So it said being in the form of, a, of God, or a God, or Deva, or, or Brahma. 
in one of those planes of existence that, that Bonte talked about this week, the different Deva realms and the different uh, Brahma realms, and saying that he descended from there in that rebirth linking, and now he's in the human realm because still caught in the cycle of samsara. Okay. And it says, but he lived as a man in this form and being fashioned as a man, there he worked at perfecting himself, humbling himself, being who he was in the world. And I like that because when we talk about um, missing the mark, like if we don't detain the mark and we land in one of those higher heavens, that there's going to come the expiration of that because we haven't entered Nibbana, and there will be the reappearance. And if it's here in this human realm, we appear as human. We have the uh, characteristics. We have the, the qualities of a human. But then there is something there that propels us forward, that propels us. I mean, the Buddha even called it the way leading up. But that doesn't sound like too much Buddhistic talk to you. I, and I very seldom hear anybody uh, use that term in the, in the Majjhima Nikaya. He said the Buddha called this the way leading upward. So it gives us some idea, some mind of, of lifting and, and a higher ground, a higher way of being, a higher way of knowing a higher way of understanding. And I think that is in a human incarnation, we have this. It's, it's a very rare, uh, Bhante shared with us how rare it is to be born as a human being and how we should not waste this time, waste our our, our preciousness, but we should seek to understand it and to expand it and keep moving in the way leading upward. So the Buddha sets before us like a, a most perfect um, example of modesty and sweet conduct, demonstrating for us the mind seal of holy beings. And we know that when we're flowing in this kind of mind, there is a sense that we have about ourselves. And when we're not flowing in this kind of mind, there's also a sense we have about ourselves, that somehow we are, have missed a mark, that we're not flowing in what we uh, feel we are capable flowing in. The good I would do, I don't do what I don't want to do, that I do. A couple of days ago, I yelled at somebody. I got upset. I was like, I just got reached a point and I was totally frustrated. And I said what I said. But not after I said it, even while I was saying it. There was this other aspect saying, oh, Paniwadi. You can do better than this. You don't have to go this way. I had a good friend in the Dharma outside of me, and he was saying, stay cool, Paniwadi. 
No? And yet, I went in that way. Like a lighting a fire. And even not after it had transpired, even while it was transpiring, I recognized that this does not line up. Not with who I say I am, but with who I know I am. And we have to be willing to look at ourselves in this way and then get it right. It, you know, he said a, a just man falls seven times uh, and gets up again. We have to have the clarity at least to get up if we fell down. And the resolve to do better next time. And of course, one person's capacity is not another. You know what I mean? So, so if you have a high capacity, say for compassion, you know, you can't look at another person and judge them and say, well, they should be able to do it if, because I can do it. Because there's some things that they can do that you can't do. It just depends on our development. It depends on our karma. It depends on a whole lot of things. That's why it says no point in looking at anybody else, what they're doing or what they're not doing. Just pay attention to what you are doing or not doing. And how that measures up with your own great wish. This is the way that we become better human beings. Want to become the Buddha's great, but first become better human beings. And when step by step, you know, line by line, precept by precept, here a little, there a little, we improve steadily. And then, yes, we shoot for the moon, but even if we miss it, we land among the stars. And this is how we walk out the spiritual life. Some say, well, it's not spiritual and non-spiritual. It is spiritual and non-spiritual. You have to know what the word spiritual points to. And the overcoming of our defilements and our erroneous views, the ways that make us act unseemly and harm ourselves and harm others. And these are things that don't have to be learned by the scholar. Even someone who can't read and write can come to know the basis of the value of life. And once we know one thing, then we seek to know something else and seek to know something else and seek to know something else. So it's gradually we grow and gradually progress, gradually as we drop off defilements, the mind becomes bright and we have the capacity to understand, to have greater understanding, to get things on a deeper level, to release and let go of the things that so easily beset us. But this is all about the work that we do here on the inside. And so there's been translated for us Westerners, four different words that mean mind. We have uh, nama, we have mano, we have chita, and we have vinyana. But 
the cheetah is the thing that captures me. And there's some, some very, um, in a 30-minute talk, I can't go into it in the depths that I'd like to go into it with you. It takes wanting to or needing to understand it at a certain level. But we might just say it's a term that could mean to us in a just sort of a conventional way of thinking as, as thought or heart or uh, mood or emotion. We're familiar with the word spirit or the idea or the attitude. It, it's that starting point from which our actions proceed. And if we looked at it, just that part of it, and it, it, it's a lot to it, but that's a, a rudimentary way of understanding it. Then we can take uh, the suttas, we can take scriptures, we can take whatever we use to embolden ourselves in goodness. We could call it like the mind of the heart, that which is the most fundamental aspect of this uh, thinking being, that which determines, that which determines uh, how I'm going to outpicture something, you know, like in the way that I have understood it. How will I use this now? What will I do with it? What will I do with myself? In that kind of way then maybe it could be of some use instead of maybe going into a, a very um, uh, academic, um, you know, discourse on it. And so that's what I'd like to do for the next few minutes. And I took four scriptures. This is their day, so I took it from their book. And one of them is Philippians 2, 5. It said, Let this mind be in you, which was in Jesus, who thought it not robbery to be equal with a God, but having come back in a human form, made of himself no representation as a God, but he humbled himself and became obedient to the causes to the conditions, to the laws of this world. And he set before us a most perfect example of modesty and sweet conduct. So in this exhortation by Apostle Paul, who by the way never met him and yet, most of the New Testament was written by him. So he got it not firsthand, right? <laughs> he got it secondhand. So in that way, already something was lost. We get it by, I don't know, a cajillion hand. You know, it's a wonder if we get anything. But that's what's so uh, great about truth. It is self-revealing. I mean, it can be kind of mixed up with error, but yet it pops and it dances and it's self-revealing. And you can uh, extract even when it's mixed up in something that's not so good. 
by its own, its own, own uh, nature of brightness. Yeah, that's what's so wonderful. That's why we don't have to worry so much. Mm -hmm. But in this exhortation, Apostle Paul is telling us that the very mindset that Jesus had, we can, we can have it also. It can be our thinking also. Because he said, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. He tells us that's the fundamental way that we should approach life. Now, the world tells us, you know, look out for yourself. Look out for yourself. Look out for your family. You might do something for your friends and the rest of them, they're on their own. You know, let them sink or swim if they make it, you know, good for them. If they don't make it, shame on them. But he taught us in a different way. He said, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. On another occasion, he said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than himself. I mean, how sweet is this? And when we look at ourselves and we measure ourselves against this, do we come even close? There's something about it that we know within our, every fabric of our being. This is the way to go. And yet the voices of the world tell us something different. God bless the child has got his own, he tells us. It teaches us a way of wrestling, like, like there always has to be win or lose, you know. It's so childish to think that we, have, we must always win. I cannot always win. And to think that I must always win is to be so immature in understanding. Sometimes there's winning and sometimes there's losing. So we have to learn to lose with the same, you know, uh, uh, dignity in which we win. And when that happens, you know, and we're not so concerned, of course we like to win. And we do try to win. <laughs> I'm just saying sometimes we won't. And we can learn to be okay with that. We could actually rejoice in someone else winning. You know, I mean, Mudita rejoicing in the successes of others. I used to have a hard time playing games because I like to win. I mean, games are for having fun, right? But if I didn't win, then the game wasn't fun. You know, it was only fun if at the end I win. And so I had difficulty with games because some kind of competitive spirit would come up in me, meaning attitude spirit, attitude, energy, and I needed to win. There's that I jumping up, that I-ness, that I-ness, rather than just in the conduct of some activity. 
with a friend. And we carry that in different aspects of our life. And that's how we separate into us and them. And how we name it winners and losers. And how we get so proud about our winning. You know, I remember reading about the... Um, Paul, I believe it was, uh, hmm. King Saul, Saul, King Saul, and he had sent David off to battle. You know, King Saul, he was, he was a mighty warrior in his day. And then here comes David, and um, David had become uh, a warrior. And Saul sent him off to battle, and, and he fought valiantly, and he came back victorious. And as he came into the city triumphantly, the people had lined the road. And they began to sing and dance and say, uh, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And when David heard them, he fell off his horse and he covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. He said, I did what was requested of me by my king for the protection of our people. He said, but I found no pleasure in it. So that's what I'm talking about, this um, mind of the heart. That's what we have to uncover. That's what we have to discover. That's what we have to promote and develop. That's what we have to cultivate, to be even in a position to begin to move towards awakening. There's some standard that must be met. And we should look deeply to see, have we met the preliminary standard? You know, um, you know a baker because he bakes, right? I mean, like if he sawed, then you might call him a sawyer. But if he bakes, you call him a, a baker, right? You know, a preacher because he preaches and, you know, a writer because he writes. And so you can know um, if you truly love by your thoughts and your actions. Yesterday, the question was asked, uh, like, what is love? And there's a famous chapter in the Judeo-Christian Bible that talks about love. And in that chapter, it uh, doesn't uh, tell us what love is. It tells us what love does or doesn't do. It's like a baker, you know, a baker because he bakes. He does something that helps you to identify who he is. And it's the same with the lover. Um, it tells us uh, what love does, what love doesn't do, 
And it's helpful because it, it lets us know whether we're moving more towards a perfect love or away from it. Am I doing the things that love does? That's the question that can be asked. Am I not doing the things that love doesn't do? So I'd like to read a little bit of that. You see my marker, so you know I still use it, right? Because uh, sometimes Buddhism can get right heady, you know, and we have to come like right home to where we live. And this is in 1 Corinthians 13. It said, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I am like sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could actually remove mountains and, have, and don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long, is patient, and is kind. It's not envious and not uh, puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly, does not act disorderly. It seeks not its own, is not easily provoked, and thinks the best of people. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in standing for what is true. And in this way, it can hold up, it can bear all things. It can believe all things, it can hope all things, and it can endure all things. So, so in that way, love never fails. Says, but whether there are prophecies, they'll fail. Whether there are tongues or revelations, they'll cease. Whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. Because we know in part, and we speak in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part can be done away. And so he talks about it not being something that we say, but something that we walk out moment by moment in our life. He said, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child. I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall understand all things as they are. Hmm. And now abideth faith, there's hope, and there's love, these three things. But the greatest is to love. So this is what I came up on. Setting a foundation, a basis for the Dharma. And it's been helpful to me in my life to understand the qualities that are necessary for the mind to be clear enough for realizations. And as long as we hold on 
to our pettiness, to our childishness. Even though the truth is sitting right in front of our faces, we will not be able to apprehend it. He said, behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like precious ointment upon thy head and as the dew that flows down from the mountain of Zion. I mean, just looking at the imagery of that, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Not just dwell together, but there's a way that we dwell together in unity. And so the Buddha starts to teach us what that looks like, what that means, how to attain it, what we have to abandon, what we have to take up. That's where we are. And we can't go any further. No amount of extrapolation is going to help us get it. It's only through and by virtue of embodying these attributes that the realization can come. Awakening is going to cost us something. It's going to cost us ourselves. We will not be able to squeeze through the keyhole. We can't take any of us with us. And so he gives us a measure, a method. He gives us strategies. He gives us Methods, he gives us tools for peeling back all of these uh, encumbrances, these notions that we have, that the world has given us about how to move forward towards the victory <laughs> of life into the spaciousness of deathlessness. There's no more coming and going. No more being born and dying. There was a, a story about a fish and a frog. They lived in a pond, a, a, a well together. And the frog hopped out of the well and he went hopping around land. And after a while he came back and the fish said, hey, where you been? He said, oh, I've been out hopping on land. And the fish said, what is land? And there was no way that the frog could tell him what land is. Because the fish had no reference for it whatsoever. So you can imagine the Buddha's predicament when he's telling us about Nibbana and that which enters Nibbana. There was no reference. We have no reference for it. It doesn't mean it's nothing. He was coming as close as he could to, to using some vernacular that fits within our paradigm, our, our structure of appearances. But actually, there was none. He said, oh, this job is going to give me a headache because they just can't get it, you know? But I'm going to try my best. I'm going to say, go that away. Do these things. Don't do those things. 
You know, gave us very simple directions, very simple instructions. We've convoluted it now into very, you know, intense systems of, of intellectual lease. I think I just made that word up, you know. But, you know, it was very simple. Like, don't do, stop doing that and start doing that. I mean, you know, that's, okay, like I know I'm working with dullards, and he broke it down like really, really simply. Of course, we've puffed it up. But it gets to be really simple. Do good and don't do evil. It's as simple as that. Consider others. Think about others. Turn your mind to others often. And you'll stop uh, focusing so much on yourself. Consider the needs of others and you won't be as concerned about your own needs. Then you can find out you don't even, that might be wishes and desires, not really needs. Or you can find out that you thought you needed it, but now you realize you could even do without it. I mean, he gives us very simple ways to shift our view, to change our attitude, to modify, you know, our behaviors. And if we just start doing that, just that way, just that simple, on that level, then something wells up inside of us. A kind of zeal, a kind of, you know, we get a taste for something, a taste for something else, a taste for something different from what we've tasted all of our lives. That's why he said, hey, Pasco, just come see for yourself. And the Bible said, oh, taste and see that it is good. So these words, words, words are used to point us towards something that is wordless. So let us not get so caught up in the words. But words have a fragrance. And let's just follow the scent. And it can take us where we need to go. The last one was in Micah 6.8. And this was during a time that Israel was uh, in turmoil. They were in danger. And um, they were petitioning God for help. And, you know, their focus was on external rights. And, um, and they asked God would it satisfy him if uh, they offered burnt offerings the offerings of year-old calves, uh, the offerings required in the law of Moses. They asked if they should bring thousands of rams and, and ten thousands of rivers of oil. And, uh, and would God uh, uh, favor them if they offered all of this? They even asked should they offer their firstborns as a sacrifice? Would that be enough to cover their sin while they were losing? And would God be pleased with them then? And in the verse that follows, he said, I have told you, O oh man, what is good. In other words, we should know how to get out of our predicaments. Seeking out the advice and then following the advice of those who are wise. 
God said he did not desire or need their religious rites, their sacrifices, or their oblations. Instead, he said something different. He said, one thing I have required of you, that you do justly, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly. To do justly, meaning whenever there is an opportunity to inject fairness, to inject just a sense of, of uh, level the playing field, no high, no low, no rich, no poor, no black, no white, no male, no female, no, all of these opposite ends. And it doesn't mean conventionally that they are, but in terms of how we relate, all being equal. When there's uh, an opportunity for me to demonstrate what that looks like, that I should do. Do justly. Love mercy. Mercy, the one who is strong should bear the infirmities of the weak. It is not by ourselves that we gained our strength. But our strength has come through so many channels, so many helps. And to recognize this allows us to be humble. Then we'll find peace in our hearts. He called it a kind of peace that the world can't give you. So the world can't take it away. So I guess you can see how I can really overlap the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Buddha and that how Jesus was, um, he was uh, raised in a fisherman's village, port city, and how uh, along the Silk Road, you know, as they brought fabrics and so forth for India, they also brought their stories. And people would gather to hear what's the newest teaching, the latest teaching. You know, and I believe that somewhere along the line he encountered those teachings. And then he, and he went out to study. He was, they called him missing. He wasn't missing. He just wasn't there. You know. But he was somewhere all of those years. And I believe and there are records in different places that speak of Isa from the Middle East. And I think he learned the Dharma. And maybe not only the Dharma, maybe Hinduism too, you know. We see little bits and pieces of things like take my, my yoga upon me, upon you and learn of me. My yoga is easy and my burden light. I mean, so there, there's some mixtures there. But the thing is that one who is on the path, the way leading upward, He has an introduction because he's prepared the fallow ground of his heart to receive that which is true. And as he approaches that which is true, even though it may be uh, intermixed with some things that are not true, that which is true has its own brilliance and dances before 
his face. And he can extrapolate it and keep moving upward. This is the confidence we can have in truth. But we have to check ourselves. You can't fool truth. <laughs> and it does cost us something. What are you willing to render for all of its benefits? That's my question to you today. As we start this new year, what am I willing to render for all of the benefits that the Dharma offers me? What is my commitment to abandon what is not wholesome, what is not useful? What am I willing to take up that is good? Oh, it means that I'm going to change. Sometimes you lose some friends. When I started being good, all my friends, <laughs> they went away. They were like, well, what's wrong with you? I'm like, nothing, I'm the same me, but they could smell the difference, you know? I said, mm, we need to leave her alone. You know, I'll, they, you know, they'll just start to leave you. So sometimes people start to go out of your life. Let them go. Stay true to yourself and to your own great wish. And he says that if we do, we will not be disappointed. He said, dwell, you are the light itself. Rely on yourself. Do not rely on others. He said, the Dharma is that light. So rely on the Dharma. Do not rely on anything else. He didn't even say that uh, you're relying on yourself, but he's saying you're relying on what? The Dharma that is in you. So how much, what you got? What's in your wallet? You know, how much Dharma do you have in you? That's going to be the important thing. So take advantage of the studies, take advantage of the retreats, take advantage of these wonderful great teachers who come, to, uh, who give their whole life. They've given up. I mean, you know, it, it, it really did cost something. I had a husband of 28 years that I loved deeply. And I was shaking like a leaf when I asked him, would he give me permission to go forth? And he was so gracious to me. He said, Diane, when you, when I let you go, now, we're not going to get into the when I let you go to India thing, like, okay. But he said, when I let you go to India, I knew you'd be coming back. He said, but I knew you would not be coming back to me. He said, 28 years I've known you. In 28 years you've been on a pursuit. And when you asked, could you go, he said, I knew. That was the end. And he said, but it's okay. He said, you know why? He said, because in the beginning, you loved only me. He said, now you love everybody, and I want to be special. So he'd been suffering all of those years. You know, and it's not that I loved him any less. I love him to this day. 
It's not that I loved him any less. I just began to love others more. That's what I mean. So you won't lose anything really along this way. You'll inherit even more. You just might not know it because you have less focus on yourself. Your needs become less. Only thing I need are things I need for other people. That's it. I have no needs. And that's what makes life good. So I think that's all I wanted to share today. And I know I'm pretty sober today, but I just woke up in that kind of mood, right? And I thought, I said, you know what? I'm going to run up to Hartwood at 4 a.m., pull out the Christmas tree. The guy was too busy to put up last week. And I'm going to put it up and put all the reefs up. And when they get up in the morning, they're going to see all of these reefs. And they say, what happened? I'm going to say, Santa Claus came last night. <laughs> but then my mind turned to that scripture. And I thought that was the best present I could render. So have a good day today with your friends and your loved ones. And uh, let this year be the beginning of something really good. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.